In the course of reading a book, have you ever flipped to the end just to make sure that everything turns out okay? Now, before you um, start throwing tomatoes at me, because you brought them to church with you this morning, uh, before you start throwing tomatoes at me for suggesting, uh, please know that I'm not actually suggesting that you necessarily flipped to the end of the book to spoil the story. Um, But if you you ever have uh, flipped toward the end, as my wife admits she has done, um, you know the feeling of, of receiving a story then with the end in view. If it's a, a well-written story, it, it remains well-written, whether you know how it will end or not. And your trust in the author might even increase once you're sure that it will turn out for the best. While Christians have the privilege of knowing that everything will turn out for our good in the end, sometimes we're forgetful, aren't we? We, we turn the wrong way or we're overcome with worry when we forget that we forget where we're headed or even where we have come from. This morning we'll see how God used prophets to remind His people of where He had brought them from and where they were headed. Keeping the end in view should, should give them and us encouragement and confidence to obey and to walk in faith. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I believe you can find the passage beginning on page 299. As we we open God's Word to study 1 Kings, we need to remember that 1 and 2 Kings were originally one book. And together, their message is that despite Israel's sin and the sins of her kings, God's true king will come. This is uh, connected to the larger message of the Bible, where from the beginning we've been promised a son, a new Adam, a descendant of Abraham, a priest like Melchizedek, a prophet like Moses, and a king from the line of David. This king will come and save God's people from their sins. Last week we we reached an interesting portion of the book of Kings. The, The book had been humming along, introducing us to king after king after king at at really a breakneck speed. In rapid succession, we were introduced to the rise, the reign, and the rule, and the ruin of ten kings. But then, in chapter 17, the pace of the book, it kind of came to a screeching halt as we're introduced to the ministry of the first significant prophet in the book, Elijah. The purpose of Elijah's ministry is, in part, to expose Israel's disobedience to the law of God. In chapter 17, it was revealed that Elijah was a man of God who spoke the word of God. He was confirmed and credentialed as a prophet of God by praying down a drought from heaven, providing food for a destitute widow and her son, and raising a dead boy from the grave. Chapter 17 opened with Elijah confronting evil King Ahab and his false worship of Baal, but then quickly departing from his presence. In chapter 18, the chapter that we're looking at together this morning, Elijah once again comes into uh, Ahab's presence. And Elijah's conflict with evil King Ahab and the prophets of Baal, it finally comes to a head. And the central thrust of this chapter is is really quite simple. It can be expressed in three words. Yahweh is God. That's the message of 1 Kings 18. 
Yahweh is God. Yahweh is the God who withholds rain. Yahweh is the God who sends His prophet. Yahweh is the God who proves His presence and power. Yahweh is the God who generously gives rain from heaven. Baal, the storm god of the Canaanites, is powerless. He, 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 he cannot answer his prophets, uh, but Yahweh can. Baal is no god, but Yahweh is God. Evil King Ahab and uh, wicked Queen Jezebel, his wife, and the people of Israel ought, therefore, to repent and abandon their syncretistic ways and follow the Lord God, Yahweh. We're going to look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 18 under four headings. Conflict, challenge, contest, and consummation. And I'll give you each of those headings as we're moving into each new section. Let's turn now and consider our first point, the conflict. Uh, please follow along as I read 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's begin with uh, verses 1 to 16. Verses 1 to 16. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the lands to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your lord. Behold, Elijah is here. And he said to him, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to where, not, to where I know not where. And so... When I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, that, Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, and how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. Well, the opening verses of chapter 18 remind us of the opening verses, or they should remind us of the opening verses of chapter 17, where Elijah, he, he bursts on the, onto the scene and he confronts Ahab. There Elijah entered into conflict with Ahab. The 
king of the northern kingdom of Israel, whose capital city is Samaria. Well, he, he bursts onto the scene, and this conflict emerges with Ahab, who is filling the land with false worship, false religion. And when Elijah proclaimed that there would be no rain in chapter 17, he was pronouncing covenant curses, the covenant curses of Deuteronomy chapters 11 and chapter 28, upon the king and his kingdom. On behalf of Yahweh, Elijah brought a covenant lawsuit against Ahab and the northern kingdom of Israel. He stands on the side of God, pronouncing the judgment of God upon the people of God. Elijah then disappears from Ahab's sight and grasp. He goes into the heart of Baal territory. And now Yahweh, now God, tells him to return and to re-enter into this conflict with Ahab. Verse 2 reminds us that Elijah is and has been an obedient prophet. He does as the Lord commands, which is precisely what the people of Israel should have been doing. The close of verse 2 reminds us that God has remained faithful to His Word. He promised Israel that there would be no rain. And indeed, there had been no rain. This had led to a severe famine. It also led Ahab and his wife Jezebel into conflict with Yahweh's prophets in the land. Elijah's initial conflict precipitated an, an ongoing conflict. Elijah, uh, Elijah's conflict had uh, repercussions upon other prophets. Having enraged Ahab and then fled, it appears that rather than repenting, Ahab took his anger out on Yahweh's prophets. And amazingly, God protects and preserves his prophets even when they're threatened by Ahab's anger. He raised up the prophet Obadiah, who helped a hundred prophets escape from the sword of the wicked queen Jezebel by hiding them in caves. God preserved them through Obadiah's plan. But don't, don't miss the key detail that you see there. They also received bread and water. Remember, this is during the time of a severe famine. You see that in verse 2. God supplies and provides for his people in mysterious ways. Ahab commissions Obadiah to join him in the mission of finding grass to save the horses and the mules. And this is evidence of Ahab's spiritual blindness. He could repent. He could seek the forgiveness of Yahweh, the God of creation, the God who gives rain. But his Baal worship has blinded his eyes. Sin brings spiritual blindness. Ahab could repent and save the horses, the mules, the people of Israel and himself, but he's, he's blind to the one true God. As I said in verse 5, Ahab commissions Obadiah to go, and f go, uh, go on this mission of finding grass, but instead Obadiah, you see there in verse 6, he finds Elijah. From verses 7 to 16, we get this interesting conversation. It's, it's kind of repetitive too. It's, this conversation between these two prophets. And the bottom line of the conversation is that Elijah wants Obadiah to inform King Ahab of his presence. And the tension of this conversation is that although Obadiah fears the Lord, which you see there in verse 3, he also fears Ahab. In fact, we're told that he fears for his life three times there in verses 9 and 12 and 14. He believes that Ahab will kill him when Elijah's name comes on his lips. Remember, the, the prophets of God are in conflict with Ahab because Elijah 
has really initiated this conflict. God has given Elijah a, a ministry of praying down drought and then disappearing. And he has given Obadiah a ministry of disobeying the queen and discreetly hiding God's prophets under the king's nose. These are two men with two different ministries, and the Lord uses them both for different purposes. We need to learn to be okay with God's varied providence. He orders the ministry of his prophets differently. Similarly, he orders the ministry of pastors and churches differently. He orders the ministry of individual Christians differently. And yet all serve him. Not everything has to look the same. Not everyone has to look the same. Not every ministry has to look the same. In fact, God's varied providence for his people might very well be the means he is using to bring about his purposes and his plans. We ought to joyfully welcome God creating and cultivating different ministries through different individuals and churches and to give thanks for them. As you can see from verse 12, Obadiah thinks that Elijah is a bit of a flight risk. Right After all, the last time he appeared before Ahab, he was swept away. He doesn't want to risk his neck for this guy who is a flight risk. And still, Elijah assures him that he will show himself to Ahab. And in the end, Obadiah is, is obedient. He informs Ahab, and Ahab makes his way to Elijah. You see that in verse 16. Well, having been reminded of the ongoing conflict between Elijah, God's prophets, and Ahab, Let's turn now and consider our second point, the challenge. Here, Elijah lays down a challenge before Ahab, the people of Israel, and the prophets of Baal. Follow along as I read 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 to 24, and see if you can spot the challenge. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17 there. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire... He is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. These verses open with a a bit of finger pointing, don't they? Ahab points the finger at Elijah and says, You are the troubler of Israel. 
And what Ahab has in mind is the last time Elijah was in his presence, right? He promised Ahab that there would be no rain. This, from Ahab's perspective, has brought trouble upon Israel. But here, Ahab is only blame-shifting, isn't he? Ahab's not owning his part in Israel's trouble. And the reason that Israel is in a drought and under the covenant curse of God is that Ahab and the people of Israel have gone after other gods. Stop and consider for a moment the fact that what Ahab is doing is deflecting, he's misdirecting, he's projecting his sin and its consequences upon Elijah. This is a typical tactic when it comes to sin. It's what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. Sadly, it's what each one of us do from time to time. Our sin is pointed out and then suddenly we start pointing to the difficulty of our situation. Or we start pointing to our upbringing, which can have significant effects. Or we point to others. But often we don't point to ourselves. Christians ought to own their sin. We ought to confess it and seek God for forgiveness and mercy. We need to confess and take responsibility for our sin. We can't deflect, misdirect, or project like Ahab does. This is a, just another reason why it is good for us to have a corporate prayer of confession. Uh, it, it's another reason, another means for us to practice the God-honoring habits and ways of owning up to our own sin. And, and we're kind of bad at it, so we get help together as a community each week. And now what, what Ahab and the people of Israel are experiencing is only what God promised would happen in Deuteronomy 11. Should the people of Israel go after other gods? We, we read it again last week, but it's so important to this text. Uh, just listen again to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. Take care lest your... This is Moses speaking to uh, the people of Israel. Uh, Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. See, Ahab, he, he pointed the finger at Elijah and identified him as the source of Israel's trouble. But Elijah points the finger at Ahab and says, No, no, my friend, you, you are the troubler of Israel. Elijah's point, of course, is that Ahab is responsible for leading the people of Israel into the worship of Baal. And in verse 19, Elijah begins to give the king's instruction. Give the, give the king's king instructions. Now think about that for a moment, too. God's prophet is giving instruction to the man who really actually gives everybody else instruction as king. And this has got to be unsettling to Ahab. Especially since Elijah has told him to gather all of, all of Israel, the, the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asher, to himself at Mount Carmel. Elijah's calling the nation and its leaders to himself at Mount Carmel. This must be unsettling because in the mind of the king and likely the nation, Elijah is connected to the drought. Right? What would he do with the nation now gathered at Mount Carmel? And for that matter, why Mount Carmel? Mount Carmel is the central worship site for Baalism, for Baal worship. All of this is the setup to the challenge. As Elijah gives this instruction, he also kind of implicitly condemns Ahab. He says to Ahab, 
I know where the prophets of Baal and Asherah eat. They eat at your wicked wife's table. And he's pointing out to Ahab that he is fully aware that his government is supporting the false religion of the Canaanites. All this while Yahweh's prophets must be hidden in a cave to eat bread. The false gods of the Canaanites, they feast at the queen's table while God's prophets feed upon bread in a cave. All gather at Mount Carmel and Elijah throws down the challenge there in verse 21. He reminds the people that they have been double-minded in their worship. They've been trying to serve the gods of this world and the God who made the world. They've been fickle while God has been faithful. And now, Elijah says, now is the time for choosing. And that is the challenge. To use the words of Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. This fickle double-mindedness has gone on long enough. Today is decision day. And look closely at the middle of verse 21. If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. You will follow someone. You will follow the one you believe to be God. And we, we can't help but admire Elijah's boldness. Right? You, you don't put a challenge like this forward unless you're certain of the outcome. Elijah knows how this will end. He knows that Yahweh will show himself to be God. Notice too that Yahweh intends to be followed. That is his design. We can say it stronger. Yahweh intends to be followed. It is His demand. You can't go on like this. You have got to choose. A half-hearted religion is not the kind of religion that the God of the Bible has designed. He has not designed Christianity to be a religion where you get to pick and choose the terms. To pick and choose the days. He has not designed Christianity to be a religion where you get to decide what He is like and how He is to be worshipped. He has not designed Christianity so that you can worship the world six days a week and worship Him on the seventh. He wants all seven days, all 24 hours. He wants your whole heart. Your whole heart. He wants you to follow Him this day and every day. And He wants you to give Him an answer. Remember who this challenge is given to. It's given to the people who claim to be God's people. So Christians, stop and, stop and reflect a minute. Is your commitment to God double-minded in nature? The, the Baal worship that was taking place in ancient Israel has deep connections to the idols of pleasure and ease and materialism. Does not our culture seek to entice us with pleasure and ease and material, materialism? These same root idols. How many of us unconsciously work so that our pleasure, ease, and material wealth may increase? How many of us unconsciously make work the instrument of our worship? Jesus told us that we cannot serve mammon and the maker. We must choose. And young people, you too must be aware that you have a choice to make too. This world is issuing its siren call to you. 
It invites you into the pleasure, the the favor of friends. The world, the flesh, and the devil all appeal to your desire to be loved and liked. And in many ways, it's natural. It's a natural desire to be loved and liked. In one sense, God made you that way. But here is the key. His love is not fickle like the world. The favor of your friends will fade. Your youth and beauty will run out. But God never deserts or abandons those He loves. Young people today, today, you must choose between the fickle love of the world and the faithful love of God. I plead with you to choose the faithful love of God. The end of verse 21 you see there, see what it says? And the people did not answer him a word. How could they? They knew Elijah was right to challenge them on their double-mindedness. They also wanted a way of escape. And how often do we choose silence as a way of escape? Who likes being challenged like this? No one. No one really likes being challenged like this. But how many of us have been lovingly challenged by another believer in our sin? And the Lord has graciously used it, even if painfully so. The Lord has graciously used it to call us out of darkness and into God's light. So let us answer his challenge today. Let's follow him. Let's receive his faithful love and answer with a yes. It is time for each one of us to stop casting about between two choices or two forms of worship. It's time for each one of us to stop chasing the world and instead choose the God who made his love known by sending his son into the world. Elijah, he lays down the challenge for all to follow Yahweh, only to lay down another challenge there in verses 22 to 24. You see this other challenge he presents? Here he presents the framework for a contest, another challenge, between himself and the, as the only prophet of God on Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal. It's one versus 450. Now, perhaps you're, you're puzzling over the 400 prophets of Asher. Where did they go? I'm puzzling over that with you. Um, but don't get sidetracked from the main point, which is this. The numbers are stacked against Elijah. Right? He's outnumbered. And yet he's trusting in the one true God. The numbers are stacked against Elijah, the prophets of Baal. They've got home court advantage on Mount Carmel. It's the center there of Baal worship. The contest involves bull and wood, but no fire. The contestants are to call out to their respective deities. And the one who answers, that's the key there, the one who answers by fire will reveal himself as the one true God. The people answered and agreed to the terms of the contest. So let's now turn and consider the contest itself, which is the next point, the contest. Let's begin by reading there in verse 25, just verses 25 to 29 for now. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, And called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar as they had made. And at noon, Elijah 
mocks them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Well, there in verse 25, you see Elijah, he initiates this contest. The prophets of Baal already have greater numbers. They have home court advantage. And then what does Elijah do? He gives them the first choice of the bull. The prophets of Baal take their pick, prepare their sacrifice, and begin to pray. They call upon Baal from morning until noon. And notice the author's emphasis there in the last half of verse 26. There was no voice. No one answered. Baal is not answering. And remember the terms of the contest are that the true God would answer by fire. And the tail end of verse 26 reminds readers of the challenge that Elijah had previously laid down. In verse 21, Elijah had said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Limping is a key word here. Now we're reminded at the end of verse 26 that the prophets of Baal continue in this unprofitable exercise by limping around the altar they've made. They're committed. They've done this for hours. And they are no doubt discouraged. So Elijah begins to trash talk. Right? That's what he does. And each sarcastic crack cuts deeper and deeper. Elijah begins mocking the claim that Baal is in fact a god. And then he provides the prophets of, of Baal with excuses for why he, he may not be responding to their cries. You know, perhaps, perhaps he's, he's deep in contemplation. Or his bowels are deep in concentration. Or perhaps he's, oh, he's, maybe he's out of town. Or, or perhaps he's laid down for a nap. Right? Elijah's mockery, it's, it's reminiscent of Isaiah's mockery of the false gods in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 15 to 17. The, the suggestion that, that Baal is napping uh, stands in striking contrast to what we know of Yahweh from Psalm 121, verse 4, right where, where we read, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The, the true God, he, he never needs to stop and think because he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. The true God never tires because he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. The true God never travels because he's omnipresent, all-present. Elijah's mockery should have led the prophets of Baal to recognize that they did not worship a true God. They worshiped a God of their own making. And sadly, these prophets, instead of hearing Elijah's mockery as sarcasm, it seems as though they almost took it as serious advice. Right? In doing so, they, they like redouble their efforts, don't they? Has this ever happened to you that you, you like, perhaps you have the spiritual gift of sarcasm and, and you offer some snarky quip only to have a friend kind of take you seriously and follow your advice and off they go. Well, it, it seems as though that the prophets of Baal think to themselves, you know, I know he's making fun of us right now, but maybe he's actually right. 
Maybe Baal is thinking or defecating or traveling or sleeping. Maybe we do need to try just a little harder to get his attention. So, so be honest with yourself. Have you ever wanted something from God and thought, what must I do to get his attention? Baal's prophets cry louder and cut themselves and they bleed. Notice that we're told in verse 29, they rave on. They, they go about this nonsense at a frenetic pace, trying with all their might to gain the attention of a God who is not there. That's the conclusion there in verse 29. It's a restatement of verse 26. Once again, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention, and that's because Baal is no God. Now, there are, are at least two lessons that we should draw from this. The first lesson is that we ought not treat Yahweh like Baal. Right? His attention is not aroused by, by raving and frenetic activity. God does not want our raving, our frenetic activity. He wants our humble attendance to His means of grace with simple faith in His goodness and generosity. And Elijah, he's, he's soon going to show us the way in that regard. The, the other lesson that we need to draw is that we ought to pity those who are blinded and committed to their sin like the prophets of Baal. Because we've been there too, haven't we? We've been blinded to our sin before. We ought to have compassion upon those who are ensnared and enslaved by sin. Consternation, anger, and enmity are not appropriate attitudes. They're not appropriate attitudes toward those who are under the judgment and condemnation of God. Our dear friends who reject and rebel against Jesus do more harm to themselves and their souls than the prophets of Baal did to their bodies. In love, we ought to pity them and plead with them to come out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. In verse 30, the contest, we see it turns to Elijah and all attention rests upon him. Let's read verses 30 to 39 now. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with flour and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell 
and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. This is a powerful stretch of verses. They move from Elijah calling the people near to himself to Elijah calling upon the Lord, Yahweh, in prayer to the Lord calling down fire on the altar to the people calling out the truth that Yahweh is God. And pay attention to what Elijah does after he calls the people near to himself. Do you see there in the middle of verse 30, what does Elijah do? He repairs the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Visually. Elijah was bringing the people to see what they have done with their sin. They have not only abandoned Yahweh's worship, but they have despised Him by throwing down or breaking down His altar. They've been busy setting up altars for Baal and busy at breaking down the altar of the one true God. And Elijah rebuilds the altar. Perhaps a picture of what Yahweh can do. He can rebuild His broken people. He does it with 12 stones. He chooses 12 stones, we're told there, in order to invoke or to call to mind God's covenant faithfulness to the 12 tribes of Israel. He reminds the gathered people that the Lord, He's a talking God. He he actually answers, right? He's the God who speaks. Remember, this is the contest between Baal and Yahweh. We know the winner by the one who answers. And Elijah reminds the people that he appeared to Jacob and he spoke to him, spoke to him, saying, Israel shall be your name. It's almost as if Elijah is saying to the people of Israel, brothers and sisters, you know how this is going to go. You know how this is going to go. Yahweh is a talking God. He answers his people when they call. Right? You're, You're Israel. The people who cried out and he answered and brought out of Egypt. He's going to answer. You know how this is going to go. This is a confrontational ministry. Because Elijah is exposing their unbelief and their sin. But this is also a merciful ministry, isn't it? How kind of Elijah to remind God's people of God's character. From verses 32 to 35, we're told of this this trench that Elijah has dug, the the preparation of the sacrifice, the the drenching of the altar with water. It's as if Elijah wants to make it plain that he's going to make this impossibly difficult for Yahweh. Still, we need to rewind and remember what is said there in verse 29. What's said again there at the beginning of verse 36. It's the time of the offering of the oblation. What's, What's the significance of this marker? For one, it's evening, right? And the the prophets of Baal have been at this thing since morning with no answer. And now Elijah offers the customary evening sacrifice that the people of Israel should be offering for the forgiveness of their sins. No shouting, no crying, no dancing, no limping, no cutting, no blood gushing except of that of the bull only pray. It's a simple prayer too, isn't it? In verses 36 and 37, Elijah invokes the covenant name of God and the names of Israel's patriarchs. He prays and asks God to make himself known, to answer, 
So that, that's the purpose, right? So that this people, so that God's people may know that He's worthy of their faith and that He's calling them, inviting them to repentance. Elijah pleads that God would answer so that God's people might return to the worship of the one true God. What a generous prayer on behalf of a people who do not deserve God's mercy. Here is Elijah praying that God would accept the sacrifice that has been shed for the forgiveness of their sins. Does God answer? Does God accept this sacrifice? Well, verse 38 tells us, doesn't it? Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. God was totally satisfied. The answer is clear. God accepts the sacrifice not in part, but the whole. God's just wrath consumed the sacrifice in a blaze of holy fire. The people did not bring this sacrifice to God. Elijah brought it on their behalf. There was nothing that Israel brought to this but their folly and sin. And as verse 39 makes clear, the people, they, they fall on their faces, worship the Lord. They declare the truth. They declare that Yahweh is God. If there is one and only one living and true God, then what must God's people do? They must stop limping back and forth between two. And interestingly enough, the people of Israel, they twice proclaimed that Yahweh is God. What must, what must God's people do if there is one and only one living and true God? Well, then they must, they must live like it. That's why we have verse 40. Verse 40. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and slaughtered them there. Now that's uncomfortable, isn't it? What, what's going on here? Is it not enough for Elijah to have won the contest, to, to won the hearts of the people back to Yahweh? Well, love for God shows itself in obedience. And what Elijah commands here is obedience to God's covenant commandments, handed down in Deuteronomy 13. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 5 to 11, we learn that the penalty, the penalty for false prophets within Israel is death. The people of Israel are to put to death false prophets in their land. This exercise is a demonstration of repentance, a turning away from the sin of Baal worship and worshiping the one true God. This is a demonstration of choosing between Yahweh and Baal and the people choose Yahweh. And Christian, it's a demonstration of what we must do with our sin. We should put it to death and not let it remain. Who will you choose? I, I hope and pray that in this contest you see your sin and that you see a picture of salvation offered in Jesus Christ. Friends, we are all like the ancient people of Israel. 
We have chosen to go after other gods, gods of our own making. We have worshipped money and possessions, people, power, and so much more. But the God who made us, made us to worship Him. And this morning, He is graciously confronting each one of us. We deserve to face the destiny of the prophets of Baal and the destruction of Elijah's sacrifice. We deserve to face God's wrath against our sin. But in love, He has offered, God has offered a sacrifice in our place. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. And the good news of the Bible is that God has sent His one and only most beloved Son to live the perfect life of obedience to Him. Jesus was more obedient to God than Elijah, for Jesus was without sin. Jesus was a better prophet than Elijah, for He not only prepared a sacrifice, He was our sacrifice. The book of Hebrews tells us that the the blood of bulls and goats, remember a bull was offered here, The book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot finally turn away God's wrath for sin. They were just pictures and pointers to the once-for-all sacrifice that the Son of God would give in His death on the cross. Elijah laid that slain bull across wood. And Jesus, He laid His body across that wood to be slain. On the cross, God the Father... He punished the Lord Jesus from heaven. It's why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father punished the Lord Jesus Christ for the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sin and place their faith in Him. And we know that God the Father was totally satisfied, that He accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins because three days later, God raised up His Son from the grave. And now God calls us to choose Jesus in faith. To turn from our sin. To forsake it. And to trust that Jesus lived and died and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins. And we too are called to proclaim Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And Christian, remember that God calls you to walk in obedience. To to walk in obedience in light of the fact that He has given you His Son and salvation from sin. As Elijah called the people of Israel to root out and put to death all the remaining prophets of Baal, so as we've thought about Jesus calls us to root out and put to death all remaining sin. If we have been truly redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, then we will truly give ourselves to the pursuit of holiness and righteousness. Just one more point of application before we turn to consider the verses that close the chapter. Consider afresh Elijah's simple prayer in contrast to the frenetic activity of the prophets of Baal. Elijah asked for Yahweh to reveal himself, to make himself known, essentially to glorify himself in the lives of his people. And Elijah prayed that this this kind acceptance the sacrifice would lead God's people to repentance. Brothers and sisters, walk, walking in the ways of Christ is the call to simple faith, not frenetic activity. We are called to appeal, to, to trust in the promises of God, to trust in the promise-making and promise-keeping God. We're called to appeal to God's covenant promises 
in prayer. And we ought to ask God to glorify Himself as we pray. Right? We're asking God to glorify Himself as we pray. And we ought to walk daily in the joy of repentance, knowing that the only thing we've brought to our salvation is our sin. Let's turn and consider our fourth and final point. The consummation. Here we find the consummation and completion of God's promises concerning rain in the land. Please follow along as I read verses 41 to 46. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. These verses remind us not only of where the chapter began, but also the beginning of chapter 17. Chapter 17 opened with Elijah saying, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now go back and look at the words of God, the opening of chapter 18. Yahweh said, Go, show yourself to Ahab. I will send rain upon the earth. The the real goal of chapter 18 is not fire from heaven, but rain from heaven. That's the real goal of chapter 18. In, In verse 41, Elijah promises that rain is on the way, and he invites Ahab to to go and eat. Note to the certainty of Elijah. He's confident that rain is on the way. How can he be so confident? He can be confident because Yahweh has spoken. In the very first verse of the chapter, Yahweh promised that He would send rain. Elijah is clinging to the promises of God. He is believing the promises of God. And as we have already seen, he prays the promises of God. While Ahab eats and drinks, Elijah prays. Note that contrast. Elijah applies himself in humble prayer. He gets low before God. While he prays, he sends his servant as a scout. servant is looking for storm clouds while the great contest on Carmel momentarily revealed that Yahweh was God it would be the rain clouds the rain that served as the ultimate confirmation of his identity as the one true God it's actually the the consummation of the drama of this chapter would Yahweh do what he said would he do what he said would he really bring the rain Was he really greater than Baal, the storm god? Seven times Elijah's servant scans the horizon. It wasn't, of course, until the seventh scan that the servant saw the small storm clouds rising from the sea. Why seven times? Why did Elijah have to keep praying? Why did his servant have to keep scouting? We're not told, but I'm... I'm guessing that you know from your own personal experience as a a Christian that sometimes God teaches us to trust Him by bringing the desires of our hearts to Him over and over and 
over again in prayer. We pray and we pray and we pray until He answers. Right? In James 5, 17 and 18 we read, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Brothers and sisters, pray like Elijah. Keep persisting in prayer. Keep pleading the promises of God. No doubt Elijah was praying, God, you promised that you would send rain. You you promised that you would send rain. So bring the rain. Keep your word. Send the rain. Keep praying and pleading the promises of God. Our God has decided that He brings about His providence in our lives in part through prayer. As Dale Ralph Davis says, God's will is certain. But He delights to do His will in answer to the prayers of His people. The prayers of the saints constitute the appointed channel by which God works His will. He is not limited to this channel, but we might say He highly prefers it. Christian, if if I can give you one promise to plead, it would be Jesus' promise from Revelation 22.20. There Jesus said, Surely I'm coming soon. Christian, take that promise to Jesus in prayer and pray like Elijah. Pray, Jesus, you promised you would come soon. You promised. So keep your promise. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Pray like Elijah. Christian, like Elijah, pray God's promises down. Christian, pray Jesus down from heaven. Once Elijah receives word that the storm clouds are forming. He commands Ahab in verse 45 to to get ahead of the rain, to go ahead, mount his chariot, make his way to Jezreel. Uh, This was not going to be a little shower which kind of uh, cools off the afternoon heat. In the words of of D. Burgess, this was going to be a gully washer. Uh, This is going to be a rain that's so strong that you ought not drive your chariot in it. Windshield wipers have greatly improved since the days of chariots. Sure enough, the, uh, the heavens, they grew black with clouds and wind, and there was what? There was great rain. A great rain from a great and generous God. How kind of Yahweh not to continue to hold the sins of Israel against them. When God forgives, He does not continue to count our sins against us. When God forgives, He showers with blessing. Israel's worship of Baal has been forgiven and God has opened the heavens. And another contrast emerges there in verse 45. Previously, Ahab had eaten while Elijah had prayed. Now Ahab rides while Elijah runs. And amazingly, Elijah even beats Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. On this day, the foot was faster than the hoof and the reason was the hand. Did you, did you notice that there in verse 46? The reason Elijah beats Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel is because the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And and when you think about it, the hand of the Lord has been on Elijah from the very beginning. But but this raises the question, why is this important to end this scene with? Why is is this important to the close of the chapter and the consummation of this scene? This is what we're going to think about as we conclude. 
What are we meant to understand by Elijah running ahead of Ahab? Why is this a necessary detail? The message is plain and simple, and its message is to Israel's king. The hand of the Lord is on his prophet. So listen to him. Keep his word. The the hand of the Lord is on his prophet. It's to him that you should listen. Ahab was given a visible demonstration of the way in which he should go. He should follow the word of the Lord. He should follow, trust, and obey the word of the Lord given through his prophet. Let the word, let God's prophet lead and guide you. And the reality is, is that this choice still lay before Ahab. Would he follow Yahweh? Would he really believe, trust, and obey that Yahweh is God alone? Yahweh had demonstrated his power over Baal, his power over creation through his prophet Elijah, but the choice between Baal and Yahweh, the choice between false worship and true worship was a choice that needed to be made afresh and be made each day. In fact, as soon as Ahab arrives in Jezreel, he would need to make that choice. For Ahab's wife, the Baal-loving Jezebel, would soon challenge Ahab to choose Baal again. When you leave today, you will face that choice again. Who will you serve? The Word of God has been held out in front of us today, and we know how the story will end. Will we live in light of it? As Yahweh accepted the sacrifice of Elijah on behalf of the people, so He has accepted the sacrifice of Christ for us and for the forgiveness of our sins. Our God has made Himself known in the ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's choose Jesus. By God's grace, let's follow our prophet, priest, and king today and every day. Let's pray that together now. Would you join me in prayer?